The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Begun Esther. We did Esther one last week, and we are now in Esther chapter two. And Esther's a weird book. Uh, what I mean by that is that Esther is the only book of the Bible that doesn't actually have anything overtly religious in it. So you read Esther, and you know it's in the Bible. So you're like looking for God's name, and as you read through it, you're like, well, he's not in chapter one. He's not in chapter two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You're like, man, ten chapters, and they didn't mention God at all. I mean, there's no miracles, there's no prayer, and so you're kind of like, what's going on? Why is this in the Bible? In fact, there were actually people that wanted to jettison it out. You know, Luther was not a big fan of Esther, and he was like, he wanted to kick it out of the Bible. There were certain people that translated, and they were kind of like, maybe we shouldn't, you know, Qumran, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, interesting fact. Uh, for a long time, they didn't have any record of the Old Testament uh, outside of, you know, four or five hundred years after Christ. And so some people thought that the Old Testament was changed. And then they found the scrolls at Qumran, which were dated 200 years before Christ, that show that this, what Daniel wrote what was in the Old Testament was actually legitimate. But they, Qumran actually just didn't translate Esther. They just didn't pass it down, you know? Um, and so it just is interesting. And, and the reason why um, is because, right, God's not mentioned, but here's the thing that we learned last week. Though God is not explicitly mentioned, he's everywhere. He is everywhere all throughout the story. So it seems strange, but the author's intentional, right? I mean, the author isn't, it's not like the author's like, you know who I forgot? Man, darn it, I forgot God. You know, that's not what the author is doing. The author is intentionally leaving out God's name so that, why? So that you and I would be active in our search for him. Because God is active and he is present all throughout the story, it is that he's inviting us to see his activity in a different light. And so a couple things for us, just as a reminder, this is happening in the Persian Empire, right? So um, when the Assyrians came and they kind of had, and then the Babylonians and then the Persians, you know, the Persian Median Empire, they came and they conquered. And this is during the time of uh, what we know as Xerxes. So it's about 486 BC to 465 uh, BC. And um, so Xerxes has come to power. And in chapter one, we kind of saw his, you know, his glory. We saw his wealth and we saw kind of uh, the ridiculousness of his trying to control everything that didn't really work out as he intended. Um, but just to give you some historical reference for this, Xerxes has just kind of put down revolts in Egypt and in Babylon and so his celebration in chapter one that we read about, his huge like party that he had for six months, and then he had like a big kager with his boys for another week, you know, celebrating his victory. You know, he had probably just likely squashed these revolts in Babylon and Egypt. And so we're going to be picking up in chapter two after this feast, and Vashti has come, and uh, Vashti refused to be a sex object, and so she got kicked out of queenship, and, uh, and we're picking up in chapter two uh, where, you know, the king is realizing his decision. So, but before we jump in there, I just want to, I want to remind us, we talked about five things, these themes that we're going to see in Esther, and I just want to, you know, keep we're going to see these themes every time. Um, but the, the first thing that we see in Esther is the reality of God's hiddenness, right? We talked about God's name is not mentioned. And so it seems as if there's no explicit miracles. Where is God? And oftentimes we can relate to that in our life. Sometimes we look around and we're like, 
Well, I don't see any like obvious miracles. Like I don't, you know, see these things. It's not like, you know, God appeared to me in a vision. So, we, you know, we experience sometimes what it seems like the hiddenness of God. And it's so interesting when you actually look at the Old Testament, you, you can kind of take this theology of God's hiddenness that you see in Genesis when he creates Adam and Eve, God is present. It says that he walks with him. They see him. They, they have deep fellowship with him. But as soon as, there is, as soon as the fall happens, as soon as sin enters into the world, there's this separation. And you see that, that there are these seasons where God is close, but, but as the story of the Old Testament goes, God becomes more and more hidden, right? He appears to Abraham in a vision. Then you see he has this special relationship with Moses, but he appears to the people at Sinai and God reveals himself and the people are like, oh no, don't, don't talk to us. Like you can talk to Moses over there, right? And so Moses becomes this intermediate and God reveals himself to Moses, you know, he says, I'm going to be with you, Joshua. But then it, as the story goes on, you see Elijah's like one of the last ones that, this, that he uses as this explicit prophet and these massive miracles start happening. You see the story of the Old Testament that it seems as if God's presence becomes more and more hidden as the storyline goes on, right? And then there's this 400-year period of silence until he sends his son, who is a full revelation of his character. And God takes off the hiddenness and steps into human uh, into human timeline in his, uh, in his son. And so we see that reality of God's hiddenness. We see it throughout the book of Esther. But the second thing is we see um, God's activity, right? Though it seems he's hidden, he's active everywhere. You look at all the coincidences, you know, you see all the reversals that happen and you can't help but think, that's God. Like God is behind the scene in everything. Even the timing of the king getting drunk and Vashti's step, you know, being kicked off. You know, like there are so many coincidences that are all throughout the story, so many reversals that we see God is present, God is moving, and he is active in this world. And so that's what this book is telling us, is that though we don't maybe see the king, the king is always there behind the scene, working and operating his plan and his purpose. The third thing uh, that we see is that God uses broken people for his purposes. Man, that's good news, and we're going to focus on that a little bit more, but, but uh, God doesn't use those that are just squeaky clean and have got their moral act together, come bringing up really nice resume, because he wouldn't use any of us, right? I mean, you wouldn't be on that list, and neither would I. And so thank the Lord that he uses broken people for his plan and his purposes. The fourth one is that uh, we see God's heart of rescue for his people. And so Esther shows us that uh, God is not going to abandon his people. That he doesn't just, you know, the people that were in Persia at the time, they were the ones that chose to stay there. They could have left. They could have left. Most of the Jews left Persia and were back rebuilding uh, Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls. But Esther and, and uh, Mordecai and their people, they chose to stay. They chose to remain. But God was still faithful. Even though they remained in this culture, God said, I'm not going to abandon you. And he rescued them. And so it's, it's good news for us because God's not going to abandon us. He rescues us. And the fifth is that we're to be a people of celebration, right? Um, Christians should not be humdrum. They should not be woe is me. Christians should be a people of celebration because um, we know what God has done for us. God has saved us because of Jesus and the best is yet to come. Man, like we should be a people of constantly, even in our mourning, Paul says, it is tempered by joy because we know what is coming. We know the resurrection of all things will happen and that this earth will be renewed and that we will enjoy a pleasure and an intimacy and a closeness and a love that this world can't even come close to. That is but mere shadows of the reality that we are going to experience one day. And so that hope, that hope, it tempers everything in our life and it makes us a people of celebration. So those are kind of the five themes. We see it all throughout the book of Esther. But now turn to Esther 2. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. 
and I'm going to stop along the way and just kind of comment on it. So in case you know, you're used to me reading all the way through, we're going to stop and talk. All right, chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, right? What does after these things mean? Well, uh, it's after he has gotten drunk and has kicked his queen off because she refuses to be a sex object. And it's likely after a period of years, right? So uh, most likely Xerxes has had a period of time and he has maybe come to his senses. It says, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated. So what it means is like, he is no longer drunk and he kind of like is in a sober mindset and looks back at what he's done and he was like, maybe that wasn't the best idea. She was pretty cute. You know, like I liked her a little bit and I kicked her out because I was drunk and I tried to use her as a sex object. That probably wasn't the best of decisions. And uh, most likely what has happened too is that, uh, is that he's um, in this period of time uh, in these, it's, we know that from the time that he kicked Vashti out and, the, and from, well, later in the text, from the time that Esther actually comes, there's a period of four years, right? There's a period of four years that eclipses from when Vashti's kicked out and from when Esther is actually made queen. And most likely what historians think has happened during this time frame is that Xerxes has gone out and he's battled the Greeks. So what happened is that the Greeks revolted uh, in his father's reign and he was unable to put them down. And so Xerxes amasses an enormous army. I mean, the likes that the world hadn't seen before, um, 30 to 40,000 men that he amasses. And he goes over to Greece to suppress the rebellion, to put them down, to put them in order. And, uh, and Athens actually hands it to him. So they get like 10,000 men and it's this, you know, really famous battle. It's where we get the whole idea of the marathon. You know, the a- Athenians actually beat the Persians and they send one man because Athens was in chaos thinking that they're going to be destroyed. And the man runs back a marathon and he, you know, gets to the city, cries out, we've won victory and then he dies. You know, so he came delivering that message and that's where we get the idea of marathon. But this has happened. So Xerxes has just faced a really um, bad defeat so he's not very happy about life right now. Um, he, his empire has been uh, in some ways suppressed and held back from further expansion. And so he's you know, lost his queen, kicked her out by his own demand, and now he's also lost a, a really key victory. And so it says uh, that he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai. So king's not doing too well. He's, he's a little bummed, you know? He like got his tail handed to him in war. He lost his girl. And, uh, and his, his, the young guys around him were like, we got to cheer this guy up, you know? Like he's, he's not fun to be around. Like this is going, we need to cheer him up. And so they come together like, we know what will cheer you up. Let's get a bunch of girls, you know, I mean, doesn't sounds kind of familiar, right? I mean, our culture doesn't do anything different. And so they, uh, they say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have, you know, a night with the king. And, uh, and so we're going to, you know, go get all of these women from around the kingdom. And we're going to get the most beautiful women. And that'll really cheer you up because we'll get a bunch of them. And every night you can see which one you like. Now, you know, the king at this point probably doesn't think it's a bad idea, you know, and some of the girls, some of the girls might not think it's that bad of idea either because, or some, and some of them probably don't. Some of them are probably rejecting it because when they are enrolled, it's not like, you know, we sometimes want to compare it to like the bachelor or the bachelorette, but they volunteer for it, you know, like they're like, hey, I want to enter into this. They didn't. 
you know, like they had these officials that went around and were like, yeah, you're cute, you're cute, not so much. You know, they're pointing out people. And, and if you got picked, if you got picked, it didn't matter if you liked it or not, you're coming along. You know, I mean, there was no like my body, my choice kind of mantra back then. It was my body, the empire's choice. You know, and so the empire got to choose what they wanted to do with its citizens. And so they would, you know, enroll women into the harem all around. And so they come along and the the bad part, well, some of the women probably looked forward to it because they thought, well, whether I get to be queen or not, it's a life of ease. It's a life of comfort. You know, the empire can be hard. Living life can be difficult. You know, finding food, having provision. If I'm in the king's harem, even if I'm not, you know, with the king, then I get a comfortable life existence isn't too hard, you know? I mean, I get food, I get luxury, you know, I get like kind of social standing. And so for some people, this would have actually been a desired thing. For others, it would have probably been very sad because they would have been stripped from their families. Their opportunity at a family, at marriage, if they didn't end up being with the king, is probably gone. Because if you go into the king and the king doesn't delight you, then guess what? You don't go get to like choose again. You're just stuck in the harem for the rest of your life. And you stay there. And so that's the end of your future romance or your future desires for a family. So we see that they have gathered all these women, all these beautiful women. And it's odd that they don't have any other standing except beautiful young virgins, right? Apparently he doesn't care about their intellect. He doesn't care about their character. He's like, listen, just as long as they're smoking hot, like that's cool, just bring them, you know? So it seems like that's his only, you know, his only characteristic that he kind of says, they got to be beautiful, they got to be young, and they've got to be virgins. So Haggai, the king's unit who's in charge of the women, he says, let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. So everything in the empire really revolves around the king's pleasure. It's strange for us to think we don't live in a monarchy. They did. Everything is revolved around this one man. His pleasure or displeasure can mean the rise or ruin of a person or a city. And so um, each girl has an opportunity to, to please the king. And it was actually probably of great benefit for each of the cities around to put forward their best, right? Because, hey, we might get a break. I mean, if the queen came from our city, then maybe the king will show favor to us. And so the cities are probably not in massive rebellion about this. Instead, they're wanting to put forward their best. Verse five, it says, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, which is kind of one of the capitals, uh, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite. So there are different tribes, right? The 12 tribes. He comes from the line of Benjamin, which later is going to be very, very critical because, right, that's King Saul. So when there was a united kingdom in Israel, there were three kings. There was Saul, there was David, and there was Solomon. Right? Saul lost the throne. He forfeited the throne because he was not faithful to the Lord and what the Lord had commanded him to do. And so we're going to learn, we're going to see this later on in the next chapter of why this is so important because there is an Agagite to his ancient uh, Canaanite that, that there is going to be some conflict with. And so we're going to see how that plays in. So it says that he who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away they likely been carried away in exile for 100 to 120 years at this point. So this isn't, I mean, think about that. That's a long period of time. That's two to three generations. 
If you just think about what's the change been like in our own country in just 50 years, let alone 100, they've lived life, they've had generations living, and so they're almost fully indoctrinated in this culture. It seems almost like home, even though it's not. And so it says that Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, right? They have two names for her. Hadassah is the Hebrew name. Esther is the Persian name. Hadassah, it means myrtle, right? The base word is myrtle. And it, actually the prefix to it, it means to be hidden. And it, it plays a role because you see that Esther hides her identity throughout the story. And the name Esther is actually a, a Hebrew uh, translation of the Persian name. Uh, and what that actually means, what Esther means is it means star, and it was likely in reference to Ishtar, which was one of their gods. And Ishtar was the god of love and of war. And why that's important is that if you read Esther, right, she is, the, the whole story is one of love and war. And so you see that both of the, these names have significance in the story of Esther. So he was bringing up Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So she's his cousin. She's his much younger cousin. And so Mordecai is gracious and he takes Esther in and pretty much adopts her, loves on her, provides for her, is, you know, is loyal to take care of her as a father. And it says that Esther is uh, two things. One, that she is, ha- had a beautiful figure. So apparently she's got a, a great body and that she's lovely to look at. So her face wasn't bad either. And so she's got, you know, she's got a really good combination. Uh, and all throughout you see that it's noted how beautiful she is about her physical appearance. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. Now notice that you're going to see that again a couple times in this passage is that Esther doesn't just gain favor, right? It's not just that favor was given to her, which is passive. You see that throughout. There are different areas where, you know, Joseph or Daniel, they gain favor. Favor is, er, favor is given to them, right? And not that God didn't give her favor, but it, it, it says that she won it. There was intentionality in her act of winning favor, that she did something to actually gain favor before others. And we see that in part of it, in part likely it was that she was very submissive, right? She was submissive to Mordecai. She was submissive to Haggai. She was submissive to the king. And in some areas, submissiveness can be a good thing, right? I mean, it talks about that we're to be submissive to the Lord. We're, you know, wives submissive to husbands. But in other areas, when we're submissive to the wrong authority, it's a bad thing. Right? If we're submissive to authority that goes against God's authority, then we know that that's not what God ordains and that's, that's a, a wrong thing. And so, but we see that one of the big reasons that she, she had a, a submissiveness about her that was um, compelling. And likely she had some kind of social shrewdness. She knew how to operate herself in social situations. As we learn and we see in the text, she wasn't a fool, right? She knew, you know, kind of how the world works. And Perhaps, you know, it's, it's speculation, we don't know, but I mean, being an orphan, you know, and how long it was that she was there before she was brought into Mordecai, the text doesn't say, but it seems as if she at least had some kind of understanding of how the world worked, you know, and how to adapt and, and find herself in social situations so that she put herself in position to gain favor, to win favor. So it says that she won the chief eunuch's favor 
And he quickly provided her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So we see that she's intentionally hidden her identity. Now Mordecai told her, so she's being honoring to Mordecai, but once again, maybe this isn't, this is, not what God had commanded, but this is what Mordecai has told her is wise in her situation. And so it seems like she's got everything going for her except for perhaps her Jewishness. At least it doesn't seem there's any other other reason why to hide it. Why not bring up your kindred? Why not share that you're a Jew unless it's going to damage some possibility that you have, unless there's some danger that you're trying to avoid? So, he goes on and it says, and every day Mordecai walked in front of the court to the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And so we learn Mordecai's character. Though Mordecai has been in exile, you know, as people have been in exile for 120 years, it seems as if there has definitely been influence, that Mordecai still is a man of integrity. He is a man that, that genuinely cares and loves Esther. He's looking out for her. He's treating her truly as a father would, trying to check up on her and make sure that she's okay and see how she's doing. Verse 12, it says, Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulation for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointment for women. Holy moly, that's a long time to be like sitting there being beautiful, right? I mean, like they for there for a year being like just taking baths and like, you know, oil and myrrh, you know, just getting pampered. And so, I mean, like they got to be like listening or like, you know, just walking through smelling, you know, amazing at this point. And so apparently the king has specific tastes, you know, he's like, you don't get to come in unless you like, you know, you smell great um, and your skin glows. And likely also it was, it was, it was also likely to, to put some meat on their bones, you know? I mean, our whole idea that skinny is beautiful was not what they thought. Skinny is poor in their day. And so they wanted to make sure that they were well-fed, that they were actually proportional, that, that they actually looked beautiful. And so likely the 12 months was several, served for several things. One, for, for beautifying them with ointments and cosmetics, for probably helping them to become healthy if they weren't. And then also probably, you know, Colin mentioned this in Bible study, we don't know, but it would likely serve to show if they were pregnant or not. You know, 12 months, you know, I mean, you don't want to sleep with somebody and then, you know, three months in, you find out that they were pregnant by somebody else, especially if you're the king. And so it probably served for all of these, all of these purposes. So it says, um, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes. Um, sorry, sorry. And when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace in the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashkaz. These names are fun. The king's unit who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the women advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tabath, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead 
of Vashti. Now, it's likely been uh, four years, we had said, since Vashti has been deposed and that Esther comes on to the throne. And even if it had been a full year, you know, that people were beautifying, that leaves him with almost three years of interviewing women. And so it's likely that he, you know, some commenters think he might have slept with 1,000 to 1,200 women at this point. And in comes Esther. In the midst of these multitude, in the midst of this, you know, tidal wave of women being thrown at the king, and she is able to gain favor with him. She wins favor with the king. And it says, and, and then the king uh, gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So this is Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. So what's the big idea? What do we see? Well, I think that we see that God's providence is greater than our sin and our circumstances. God's providence is greater than our sin and our circumstances and that we can have hope that God can still use us even in the midst of our brokenness. All right, so uh, what we're gonna talk about, the three points uh, that we're gonna go through is God's providence is bigger than our past. God's providence is bigger than our place in life and God's providence is bigger than our position in life. So before we talk about God's providence, we should probably define what it is. Uh, We use that a lot, providence, but what is providence? What does that word mean? Uh, what providence means is it is foresight, right? It's, it's God's ability to look forward and see what is coming, but it's more than just foresight. It's also God's foresight partnered with his provision, right? It's God's foresight partnered with his provision that he is making provision beforehand for what is to come. And so God's providence is that he sees the future. He knows what's coming, but God doesn't just know what's coming. He's actually preparing things to happen for what is going to come. So uh, says to supply, providence means to supply what is needed, to give sustenance or support. And so the noun providence has come to mean the act of providing for or sustaining and governing the universe by God. So what does providence not mean? What is providence not? Providence is not fate. Right? Sometimes we talk about the future or circumstances as well. It just is what it is. There's no other way it could have been. And I guess that's just the way that, you know, it had to be. And fate, the difference between providence and fate is that fate is impersonal. Fate is cold. Fate is impartial. Fate has no plan or purpose going about it. It's simply uh, robotic determinism. That this is simply the way that things had to be. And there's no rhyme or reason behind that determination. You see, and that is not what providence is. Providence is not faith. It is not impersonal. It's not cold. It is not robotic, right? Providence also doesn't mean that our actions don't mean anything, right? We can say, well, if God already knows and if things are gonna happen, then, you know, I might as well just not do anything. That's not at all what providence means. Providence doesn't mean that because God knows and God is preparing and God is providing for what is going to happen, that our choices are meaningless, Our choices have great impact and our choices have great culpability that we are held accountable for our motives and for our actions and that we can't say, well, what will be will be and just give ourselves over to sin and just go on in a relationship we know that God would call us to be out of or just compromise in our integrity where we know the Lord would call us to purity. We can't just leave it up and that's that's a fatalistic understanding. That is not a Christian understanding of providence. So, um, 
Yeah, we are accountable. You know, we are accountable for our choices, motives, our heart. Um, it also, providence means that God is sovereign over all the details. And that's hard for us to understand that God is sovereign over every single detail in life. There's nothing that happens outside of God's will and God's plan, but yet that we are responsible and accountable for our choices. We look at that and we think, how in the world do those go together? But it, they do. The Bible teaches that. The Bible teaches that God is completely sovereign over every detail in, the, in this whole world, but yet we are also going to be held accountable for our choices, for our motives of our heart. And Jesus really talks about in the Sermon on the Mount that the motive of our heart is what God looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart and he sees what's going on and we are held accountable for those things. Job eleven seven through nine says, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, God talks and he says this. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, God has, God has a secret will that he's working out in this world. We don't understand how it operates or what's going on, but God has a secret will that he is working behind the scenes, but God has a revealed will, things that he has commanded to us. He has called us to obey and to do. And we can't justify disobeying what he has obviously revealed to us because we think, well, his secret will is gonna happen and make it all good. He says, no, that's not how this operates. God has kept the secret things for himself and he knows and he's operating, but he's given us his word. He's given us his law. He's revealed these things that we might know them and that we might do them, that we might honor the Lord. So what does his providence mean? It means that God's will and plan will be done and accomplished according to his loving purpose, right? God's God's purpose, it isn't impersonal, but it's very personal. It's not cold, it is loving, and it is gracious, and he's working all things together for his good plan and for his glory. Daniel 4.35, it says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God will, his will will be accomplished He is sovereign. And that is what separates God from an idol. Is that an idol is not living and cannot accomplish its will, but God is a living God and he is powerful and his will will be done one way or another on earth as it is in heaven. He will bring heaven down one day. And that God's will and plan is stronger than our own and that he can provide for those things in the future that we don't see. We learn this from the story of Joseph, right? Joseph's story is such a prime example of God's providence operating with human choice is his brothers sold him to slavery, right? He, he made a stance on purity and with Potiphar's wife and she said he tried to rape me and he's thrown in prison for his purity. All these things, they're conscious people in these, in these scenarios that are operating and making choices for evil. His brothers, Potiphar's wife, their choices are, they're accountable for him. They're evil. But at the end of the day, Joseph says this, he says, they intended it for evil. Talking to his brother, he says, you intended this for evil, but God intended this for good. He's talking about the very same action, the very same action, God had a purpose behind their actions, even though theirs was evil, his was good. And so we know that God is able to, God is able to use even the broken motives of man as a part of his sovereign plan and purpose in this world. So we've learned a little bit about providence. The other points aren't gonna be as long. So verse, uh, our first point is God's providence is bigger than our past. God's providence is bigger than our past. And we learn about this. Look at Esther's broken past. So Esther is caught 
in this web. She is stuck between living in two worlds, right? The world of being a Jew and identifying with her people and the world of living in the Persian empire with all of its allure and all of its seduction and of all of its intrigue and its power. And she is caught between these two. Now, what does she do? Esther compromises. She compromises. Now, oftentimes what we want to do is we want to look at Esther, and a lot of times in the Bible we do this unbeknownst to ourselves, is that we want the, the main person to be a hero. We want them to be a moral example. And uh, later on in the book we see God's redeeming Esther and that she does make a choice in the, the most critical time. But what chapter 2 is showing us is that when there is any opportunity, Esther, Esther compromises. She hides her identity she has no problem with having sex with the king. She ignores the Sabbath. And here's the thing, even if there were, even if there were a pause, but the text says that there's, it's completely silent. Whereas if you look at Joseph, if you look at Daniel, you look at any of the other exiles, it, it brings up all of these things where they, they made stances, they stopped. And they, they could have, you know, they, they said no, but there's no sign of that. There's no no from Esther. There's no stopping. She just continues to glide along with, with the empire. Right, so uh, Ian Drude, he says, if someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. If someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. Right, because we can rationalize, and it's easy, it's easy to rationalize for Esther. She's swept up in a culture. She's swept up in events that are beyond her control. She's just trying to listen to her uncle. You know, she's trying to be honoring. There's all kinds of things that we can try to argue. And it, right, it makes it easier. And don't we do the same thing in our lives? Right, we're guilty, and I know I'm guilty of the same thing, is that we rationalize our choices because we look at all the influences. Well, this is weighing down on me, and there was this person, and then this happened to me. And we, we rationalize all of these things. Versus saying there, there is a right and a wrong. And though there are all kinds of things that lead us to our choices and we don't operate in a vacuum, right? God still calls us to costly obedience. God calls us to costly obedience. And you see it all throughout. John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist could have just been like, hey, I'm gonna talk about lots of other sins. I'm not gonna call out Herod the king. That's probably not a good idea. There's lots of other socially acceptable sins that I'll talk about. But no, instead, John the Baptist went and he proclaimed that Herod, you're sinning, you're having your brother's wife, and that is wrong before the Lord. And what did it cost him? It cost him his head. He got his head on a platter. And so you see the Bible is full, is, is stocked full with people that it cost them everything to obey. But we see that at, at this point, and listen, God's secret will is operating here, but we can't say, well, Esther knew that she was gonna become queen and she was gonna save her people. And so she just was like, I'm gonna keep quiet because that's coming in the future. Esther had no idea. Right? She didn't know that any of these things were going to happen in the process. God was operating behind the scenes, but s- still there was compromise. And so we see Esther's imperfect past. She submitted to men rather than God. She hid her Jewishness. She forsook the dietary code and ate the king's food. She played the role of a sex object for the king. She had premarital sex. She married him. She knew and worked the system. As the events of the book unfold, the tension between her two identities will force her to decide between them on several occasions. The first one being almost immediately after she arrives in the royal palace. On the one hand, being true to her Jewish roots would certainly mean avoiding at all costs becoming a pagan king's concubine. On the other hand, living in the cultural climate of the Persian world, uh, Persians would mean seeing the luxury of the Persian court as something desirable. Esther, it seems, is really caught between two worlds. 
Throughout history, people of faith have always found themselves living in the same tension, struggling with whether to be faithful to their core identity among the people of God or whether to capitulate to the pressures of cultural expectations and opportunities. And this speaks to us. Don't we have imperfect past as well? Haven't we made poor decisions? Haven't we compromised in different areas of our life? Maybe you look at the past and you think, man, I I blew it sexually. I've had a long list of partners and I wasn't faithful to what God would call me to be pure and to abstain. And I feel like my past, it, it ruins me being used for the future. It's scarred me, it's broken me. Maybe it's that you're still in the midst of that. You're still in the midst of, of being addicted to pornography, of engaging in what God would say, premarital sex, or, or maybe it's that you you know, are in an extramarital relationship, committing adultery. And you think that, man, listen, God would call us to repent. God would call us to confess and turn. But maybe this have happened in your past and you're still stuck and you're still wound up by that past and God wants to free you. Your past doesn't define you. God's providence is bigger than your past. Maybe it's a marriage that you had in the past and it's, it's fallen apart and it's in shambles and you're still struggling with being identified with that. Maybe it's terrible choices that you made in the past, words expressed in moments of anger and frustration or you said things that you feel like can never be forgiven, or you acted in ways that were horrendous and that hurt people deeply, and they still mark you. You still carry that and are almost identified by that. Maybe it's spending years and years of your life for what doesn't matter. Entertainment, comfort, luxury, living life for affluence, living a life marked by selfishness rather than selflessness. And you wake up one day and you realize that I've lived my whole life for nobody but myself. And you look back on those years and you mourn how they were wasted. And you are start to be identified by the waste. And all of us have imperfect pasts. All of us have messed up. None of us come with a, a perfect resume and says, God, here you go, use me, I'm, I'm clean. All of us are imperfect. But man, there's hope. Why? Because God's providence is bigger than our past. God knew what was going to happen and didn't mean that he endorsed your sinful decisions, but it means that he can use broken decisions in the past as a part of his plan for the future and even in the present. He can use our sinfulness when we turn it over to him and use it for a testimony of his grace and his glory. And so your past does not define you. God wants to free you from that because his providence is greater. He is known all along and he has good plans for you. God has a a way of doing that for people. We look at Rahab, you know, she's in the lineage of Jesus and she was a prostitute and he used her to save his people, to to let them have victory. We see David, right? David, I mean, if anybody has a checkered past, you know, killed one of his best friends and took his best friend, one of his friend's wives, committed adultery. And yet God, God would use someone like that. Matthew, one of his own disciples who was a tax collector, sold out his own people, sold out his own people for wealth was willing to give them over to the people that were subjugating them, who had ruled them, and yet he would call him to himself and totally redeem his past that he might author one of the gospels. The second thing we see is God's providence is bigger than our place. God's providence is bigger than our place. Right, we see that she is stuck with, that Esther has lived in a broken world and lives in a broken empire. That she, Esther, has a broken, uh, is in a broken place. Right, She understands the the broken world that she was born and that her parents died. And being an orphan, she knows what it means to be in a broken world, to have situations in life out of your control. 
and to realize and feel like you're a victim of something that you had no part of, you had no control over. She knows what it means to be in an empire that's volatile, that all it takes is the king's disfavor and a people can be gone. And so she, she's in an in a imperfect place. It's not like her world is in this insulated bubble and that everything is nice and peachy all the time. Right? Her circumstances are constantly vying against her. She lived in a world dominated by male influence and by male power, right? She lived in a world that looked at affluence. I mean, I, I think of Esther in some ways like Aladdin, right? She is this orphan that has come and she's taken up and she's probably sitting there looking at, you know, she gets to look at the castle and look at the king's palace and wonder what it would be like to have that kind of wealth, to have that kind of ease, to have that kind of comfort. And this is the culture around her. This is the place that she's at. Think about it. She's probably not super wealthy. She's been orphaned. She's in a very unstable environment. And in some ways, her beauty is actually, though it can be an advantage, it can also be a disadvantage, depending upon the favor of whatever man you're around. And so she's not in a a perfect place. She's in an imperfect place. And so some of us, we're in imperfect places. We are caught up in a country that is far from perfect. While I love America and I'm grateful for the freedom that we have, we value external beauty, we value wealth, we value comfort over almost everything. We value immediacy. If you don't, can't, can't give it to me now, then I don't want it. And all of these cultural pressures, they are pressing in on us. And if we're not careful, we will be swept along in that river and then we'll begin to look around and think, where am I going? Oh, I'm actually in the river. Maybe it's that you have an imperfect work situation right now. The people that you work with, they're difficult to get along with. Maybe they aren't, uh, aren't Christians and they, you know, they would belittle you if you talked about Christ or they would not think well of you or you feel like you have to hide the Christian identity that you have. Maybe you're in an imperfect place because of sickness. Cancer has come on and is attacking you and you feel like you're bombarded or you have loved ones that are being affected or you maybe you're just consistently under illness. You have a perpetual sickness that just keeps coming and keeps attacking and you just wish, if I could just change these circumstances, if, the, if my place could just be different, then I would be able to be used by God. Then things would begin to happen. Maybe it's that you're struggling financially and you think, man, if I could just, if I could just rub two pennies together, <laughs> man, I, what I could be used by the kingdom to do then. Maybe it's that you feel marginalized. You feel lonely and isolated. You feel like you have no friends. You feel like you have no one that knows you. You don't have influence you think, man, if, if I just had a group around, if I just had people that knew me and loved me, really, then I could just, I would be, I'd be able to be used then. Maybe it's that you've gotten older and that you're not able to do what you once did. You're seeing limitations of your body and that the ministries or the abilities that you used to have are now um, being taken or being hindered. And you feel like, man, if, if my place was just different, if my circumstance was just different, then I could be used by God. And I think Esther wants to give us hope because it shows that, that God is able to use us and his providence is bigger than our imperfect place and our imperfect situations and circumstances. And that he can use even in the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of our work and our family and our sickness and our finances, God can use in the midst of all of that for his plan and his purpose because God's providence is bigger. It's bigger than our place. The third thing we see is that God's providence is bigger than our position. It's bigger than our position. And we see this with Esther, right? Esther had an imperfect position, right? I mean, imagine you grow up and you, 
you don't know your parents really well. You know, I mean, like you, you've been orphaned and you'll, you have a cousin that's taken in. I mean, her position in life as a young woman, that was a very, I'm sure that was an extremely difficult position. And now she, her, she's not really in an ideal position being taken into a harem where she might be a concubine for the king. Not really an ideal position to be in life, right? Who, you know, please sign, sign me up for that, right? So, or it, now she enters into the position of queenship and a position of influence and of power, but yet she's forsaken her Jewish identity and she's hidden that because in order to be with the king. And so we see that she's not in a, in a perfect position. She's in imperfect positions. And so with us, maybe you feel like your spot in life has been hindered by the position that you've had. Maybe it's by the family that you had when you were growing up. Your position as a kid, you faced abuse. You had people that, that hurt you. Maybe it was those that were closest to you that loved you. Maybe it's your position in, in a work area where you feel like, man, I have people that are over authority, that have authority over me, that they use it. And, uh, and I, I feel like if only I could get outside of that authority, if only I could you know, get outside of that, then man, then God would really use me. All of us have different positions that God has given us in life, whether it's as a parent, whether it's as a, a son or a daughter, whether it's as a friend, whether it's as an employee. God's given us different positions in life and none of those positions are gonna be perfect. All of them are gonna have their challenges. All of them are gonna have their frustrations. And if we think that, man, if only I can get into this position, the right job, the right spouse, the right friends, then God will really use me. And Esther shows us that, listen, God uses us even when we're in broken positions in life, even when our marriages are difficult, even when our our work opportunities aren't ideal. God's providence is bigger than our position in life, than our titles, and he can use us. So, as we close, I just want to uh, share this story. There's a story from uh, Gordon McDonald. Uh, he talked about that there was a, uh, an English pub that was on the sea, and it was a really dark and, and windy night, and so the pub was just packed. I mean, it was just packed full. Everybody was there, and uh, the food was good, you know, uh, lots of drinking, and everybody had, you know, different beers and ales and everything going around. And the waitresses, you know, it was really loud. Everybody talking over one another. And the owner of the pub had just gotten, uh, you know, the wall painted. It was beautiful. He just got it done, you know, a couple days before. And, uh, and so just really thankful, admiring it. But the pub was so packed. It was so jammed that as the waitress was walking up and she had all these cups, you know, all, all the beers, all the ales, everything in there. And somebody bumped her and all the glasses fell and all of it got on this brand new painted wall. And you could hear this room that was just jammed full of people immediately fell silent. And this painting that had just been done that was so valuable, so beautiful, looked like it was ruined. Looked like it was, it was scarred. It was gone forever. And as the owner of the pub started to get frustrated, started to get angry and was you know, debating himself, what am I going to do? There arose a, a man from the corner and said, let me see if I can do something about this. And this little man, he went to work and for the next 45 minutes, he worked on this wall that had this massive stain and he turned it into a masterpiece, into something beautiful. He worked around all the stain marks and used it to etch out this picture that he had had and 45 minutes later, it looked better than when it first started. And as that man left, he walked away. He signed his name at the very bottom corner. And the owner of the pub came up and looked down, and he saw that who had just been there was one of the best artists in all of England. 
and that he had taken what had seemed to be a mess and had seemed to be broken and he had used it for his masterpiece to put together. In the words of a Portuguese proverb, God writes straight but with, but with crooked lines. The remarkable, even scandalous truth is that God's providence is strong enough and his grace is big enough to take the crooked lines of our moral compromises and to write straight. His larger redemptive story. Thus, there is hope for us, just as there was for Esther. He can redeem the seemingly unredeemable. He can write straight with very crooked lines. Brian Gregory. Father, thank you so much that you are good and that you are sovereign and that you can, even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the midst of our failures, God, you can write straight lines. You can weave a beautiful story together. Thank you for how Esther shows us that. And so I pray, God, that um, whatever it is that we've had in our past or whatever it is that we're going through, God, that we would turn it over to you. We'd realize that your providence is greater. Your, your insight and what you're doing in our lives is bigger than what we can see right now. You see the beginning from the end and that you are preparing things for your plan and your purpose. And so help that to give us hope, Lord, that you don't forsake your people. You don't stop using your people even when we have failed, even when we have been faithless. God, you remain faithful. And so I pray for us, God, that 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 would lead us to have courage. It would lead us to say no to sin and have a greater fervency for your name and for holiness, God. Um, That it would lead us to be indifferent about our sin, God, to say it is what it is, but instead that you would help us to see your good grace and that it would move us out into passionate obedience. It's in your name we pray, Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.